right, well, let's go once again to the Lord in prayer before we dive into his word together. Father, we just sang words calling you our treasure. Lord Jesus, you said the kingdom of heaven, having you as king, being in the realm where you are king, is like discovering a treasure hidden in a field, a pearl worth selling everything that we have to, to get it. Lord, only people who truly know Jesus can experience Jesus as a treasure. And so I pray that you would work that in our hearts today. That we would experience knowing Jesus as a treasure. As worth even laying down our rights, as we'll see today, to introduce other people to him. I pray that you would help us as your people to clear out of our lives any barriers that we might put up that get in the way of other people encountering Jesus as a treasure. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are continuing our journey this morning in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to cover almost the whole chapter this morning. In these verses, what Paul is going to do, the apostle who wrote this letter to this church, he's using the example of his own life and ministry when he was working with the Corinthians. He's not with them anymore, but when he was with them, he, 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 he's reminding them of the way he lived. And he's using that example as an illustration for these Christians to, um, it, he, well, he's trying to illustrate the way that he's calling them to live in chapter 8. He's calling them in chapter 8 to lay down, to not use what they felt they had a right to do. And that context was, we can eat whatever meat we find in the market or in the temples. And he's saying to lay it down, that right, for the sake of love. And now he's going to say, this is an example of my life, where I did this very thing, laying down my right for your good, because I loved you. So let's work through the text together. I'm just going to work through it in, um, I'm not going to read it all up front, because there's a lot of verses, and that takes a lot of time. So we're going to just read each section as we come to it, and we're going to work through it in, in three steps. First, what we're going to see in verses 1 to 15, if you're taking notes, you could write down, this is kind of the outline of what we're going to do. In verses 1 to 15, we're going to see Paul rejects his right to reimbursement, to being reimbursed for what he does. So as he starts to make up, make his case in these verses, he, he makes a case that, a strong case, that preachers, ministers of the gospel should be reimbursed for their labors. But then he says, I laid that right down, and I did it for you. We'll look at his reasons. Second, you know, so that's the second thing. We'll see his reasons in verses 16 to 18. Why did he lay down that right? And then the third and final thing we'll, co we'll cover is Paul's resolve to flex, to be flexible for the gospel. So, first, Paul rejects the right to reimbursement. The second is Paul's reason for his free labor. And the third is Paul's resolve. So, rejecting reimbursement, a lot of R's. Uh, his reason for free labor and his resolve to flex for the gospel. So we'll put all these together and here's the main point. If you're a main, what's the big idea of all of these verses? The main idea, Paul freely lays down his right to be paid so that he can experience the reward of preaching the gospel in the way that the Corinthians most need. Okay? 
He rejects, lays down his right to be paid so that he can experience the reward of preaching the gospel in the way that the Corinthians most need. All right? So the first point, point one, Paul rejects his right to reimbursement. Verses 1 to 12 and verses 13 to 14. But before he explains his rejection of his right to be paid, before he says, I'm, I'm not going to take money, he spends verses 1 to 12 and verses 13 to 14 trying to make it really clear to the Corinthian church that he actually does have the right to be paid for his labors as an apostle. He has a right to earn his living from preaching the gospel. Jesus himself taught this in Matthew 10, verse 10, and in Luke 10, verse 7. Jesus said the gospel worker there is worthy of his wages. Those who live by the gospel should get their living from their gospel work. But let's look at what Paul says, verse 1 of chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The, the answers of all, to the, all these rhetorical questions is yes. Am I not free? Yes, I am. Am I not apostle? Yes, I am. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, I had a vision of him on the road to Damascus. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you, Corinthians, are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, um, they were the stamp that, yeah, he's the real deal. He's a real apostle. Why? Because they came to faith in Christ through his ministry. Their very existence as Christians shows that when Paul preaches, the Spirit works through him. Verse 3, this is my defense, Paul says, to those who sit in judgment on me. Apparently, the Apostle Paul was experiencing some sort of judgment about his status as an apostle. He was on trial in some way by at least some in Corinth. We really see this come, the cave, come through clearly in the letter to the Corinthians that we have as the second letter to the Corinthians. Second Corinthians. But here, it kind of shines through a little bit as well. Folks in Corinth were wondering, is Paul really the real deal? He looks different from any other teacher we've ever experienced. For example, um, his refusal to take money from us. That was not something they were used to. And it was something that made them really frustrated. I don't know if you remember way back when, when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 up to chapter 4, but there we were talking about the, the messed up way that the Corinthians uh, thought about leadership and how they would have these traveling thought leaders, um, to use a modern term, come to town with a, with, um, a style of preaching and or of teaching that was uh, just would rally the crowds to them. These powerful, wealthy teachers would roll into town with a whole entourage of disciples who were paying them, or whose parents were paying them big money, to study under them because they had a big name. You want to attach yourself to a big name if you want to go places, right? Harvard on your degree opens doors for you. That's a fact, right? A lot of presidents were Harvard graduates. It opens doors. Well, in the ancient world, if you were connected to Plato, it opened doors for you, or any other lesser teachers that were rolling through these towns. Okay. Some of these teachers would roll in and they'd even bring their wives along with them with great pomp and glamour and put them up in the best hotels and show them off as beautiful women. See how great a teacher I am? I've got the most beautiful wife in town. We've got the best camel, whatever it was at that time, the best car nowadays. Um, they were after power and prestige and more money, but not the Apostle Paul. 
Paul is going to go out of his way. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 1 to 4 to look different. Here's what Bible teacher and scholar D.A. Carson writes about this. One of my favorite New Testament commentators. Carson writes this. He says, in much of the first century Hellenistic world, traveling teachers, these guys that would go from town to town, they were assessed, you know, is he good, is he bad, in part by how much money they could take in. People wanted to brag about how much money they paid for Professor so-and-so for a course of lectures. If Paul would not accept money from the Corinthians, who wanted to lavish it on them, so they could feel good about how important their guru was, many felt it proved he did not really understand the rules of the game, and so he couldn't amount to much. Okay, think about it this way. How many of you know people who love, maybe you are these people, you love to brag about the great deal you got on stuff? I got a great deal on how many of you know people, I'm not going to ask if it's you, but you know people that like to brag about how much money they spent on stuff? You know what my truck cost? 50 grand, I'm so awesome, you know? Like, that's how this worked in Corinth. My teacher, I, we hired him for big bucks. We pay him a lot. Our pastor has a $4 million home and a private jet and a Lamborghini and I don't even know the names of other cars. It is in his seven-car garage. That's our pastor and a swimming pool. Have you ever been to it? No. But we've seen satellite images of it from space. It looks awesome. You know. So that's what was going on in this dynamic. These teachers, high-paid teachers, people would feel good about how much they paid their teacher made him feel more important and Paul goes out of his way when he gets to Corinthians the Corinthian church Paul's going to steer as far away from this as possible by saying don't even pay me a dime okay so we're going to talk about that more but even so even though he knows his gospel work has the right to be paid he could accept reimbursement so look at verse 4 now he's going to make a case for that he says, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us on our journeys, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother and, and Cephas? That would be Peter. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Now he asks these rhetorical questions that are really illustrations. Okay, Who serves for a soldier at his own expense? Nobody. The army pays you. They pay you decent. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do you know any dairy farmers who are not allowed to drink their cow's milk? I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe they'd be allergic to it, but they're allowed to. They're free to. Verse 8, they have a right to it. They can drink as much as they want and not pay for it. Verse 8, do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, this is in the Old Testament, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, while it's towing the grinding wheel around and around to grind your grain. Don't put a muzzle on it. Let the ox eat. That's a command that Moses gave. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely, verse 10, he says this for us, doesn't he? Paul is saying that the principle here in the law, you should feed the auction that works for you physically, the principle is a lesser to greater. If you should feed your oxen, then what's the principle? How much more should you feed your servant made in the image of God? Okay, that's how Moses' logic in the law. Love of an oxen looks like feed the poor thing while it's working for you. The worker's worthy of his wages. Don't just starve your oxen and, you know, don't feed your oxen. And that, so how much more the one who harvests your field? That's how the law is working. And Paul is drawing a conclusion from that, a, a practical illustration. He says, um, God is not concerned about oxen, ultimately. He's saying this for us, a principle for humans, like the oxen aren't reading this. 
Okay? I mean, if you have an ox that's actually reading this and going, yay, I green light, I can eat grain. See? Until it's own, no, no, this isn't for oxen that it was written. Okay? Yeah, God does care about how we treat our animals. But it's not for the oxen that it's written. It's for humans that we can draw principles from it about loving God and neighbor. So Paul goes on. Yes, it's written for us because whoever plows or stand and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Carol, you're a big gardener. Would you be motivated to plant a garden if you couldn't eat any of it? Probably not. Yeah, the hope of sharing in some of the harvest um, motivates. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, says Paul, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? In other words, Paul and the apostles with him were those who started the church in Corinth. He says, shouldn't we and our the other companions have a right to be paid to be supported for our labors among you okay and and the implied answer is yes look at verse now look at verse 12 but we did not use this right on the contrary we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ so apparently Paul believed that taking money from the Corinthians would hinder the gospel work among them. It would not have been loving for him to accept money from them because of the messed up ways that they viewed leadership and money. We brag about how much we pay Paul. No, he wants to remove any chance of that. He worked there as a tent maker. Maybe you've heard that illustration. That person is a tent maker in their ministry, okay? They, that means they work full-time to provide for their own needs, and they preach and they teach on the side. Paul says he did that. He did that for a purpose. That wasn't the norm. He had a right to accept reimbursement, like Jesus did when he stayed in people's homes. Okay, and people shared with him and provided with him. Okay, so Paul, that was in a Jewish context. All right, very different context. Paul is in a Gentile context with a lot of really messed up ideas about leadership, and he goes out of his way to avoid anything that would get in the way of the gospel ministry. We'll talk more about that. Second, but his, his, his actions are very similar to those modern to modern missionaries today who go to brand new places to preach and teach the gospel for the first time. Okay? Missionaries that we send out today and we support as our church, they don't roll into unchurched places asking for free housing, free cash, yeah, I'm gonna need that car. Um, yeah, I like to eat at this restaurant, and uh, I like gift cards. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna really appreciate if you uh, if you provide some uh, education, like an education for my kids and school. Like, no, our missionaries don't roll into town looking for perks. They shouldn't. No, they go and offer the the, the gospel free of charge. Doing the opposite would be a huge hindrance to the gospel. But that doesn't take away from the principle that Scripture gives about those in gospel ministry. In verse 13, Paul's going to add another example. He's just piling up all these illustrations. Verse 13, don't you know that those who serve in the temple, so here he's using an example of the priests of Israel, they get their food from the temple. The priests of Israel are full-time. They're super busy working in the temple, therefore they eat some of the extra from the sacrifices. They share in what is offered on the altar. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord, here's Jesus, has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now he says it again, but, verse 15, 
I have not used any of these rights. And he adds an important word of clarification here. Um, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you're going to do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. Um, you ever talk to somebody that's like sharing this need, sharing that need, and you get the sense after a while maybe they're fishing for handouts, okay? Um, maybe, maybe they're saying, like, oh, we, we need that, okay? I'm not saying it's wrong to let your need be known. By all means, let your need be known. But Paul is, Paul is saying, no, I'm not fishing for handouts here. I'd rather be dead than say, I then not be able to say I preached the gospel for free. So, so why was Paul so intense about this? That's pretty intense language. I'd rather die than not preach for free. Even though it brought him criticism, he was he was super, he was laser focused in his resolve to lay down his right. To rely on the support of those he was ministering to at the moment. Like Jesus did in his earthly ministry. But Paul lays down the right to do what even Jesus did in his ministry. Okay? And he's super intense about it. He's going to keep this right. He's going to remain this way. Why? Well, here's his reason. This is the second point. In verses 16 to 18, his reason for his free labor... As I already mentioned, he would rather put up with anything that would hinder the gospel. Accepting pay from the Corinthians would have hindered Paul's ministry because of their messed up views of teachers. We've already covered that. When Paul refused money for free food and housing, he was actually loving them and protecting them from their own unhealthy views of leadership. Even if they didn't totally see it that way. You might be sometimes you might protect your kids from something with the command that you give, even though they don't agree with you. Oh, I don't say it that way, mom and dad. You just trust me. I'm protecting you. I'm protecting you from yourself. Okay, and and that's basically what Paul's saying in as many words. Now, for those of you who were here last week, you remember may you may remember that in chapter eight of Paul's letter. Um, Paul encouraged the Corinthian Christians who have a theologically correct view about eating meat sacrificed to idols. He said that it's not wrong for those Christians to eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols. However, he says you should, in verse 13, you should lay down your rights. Reject your right to eat the meat. Abstain from eating meat if it might not be loving to other Christians to do it, if it might hinder or hurt someone else's faith. In other words, don't eat meat if other Christians deep down feel it's wrong, and if they watch you do it, they might be tempted to go ahead and eat this meat sacrificed to idols, when everything in them is saying, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and they do it anyway. And you start to develop a callus over your conscience. And it leads you back into a life of sin. So he says, listen, even though you know theologically it's okay, it's meat as meat, lay down your right for the sake of love. And now chapter 9 is all about Paul's example of this is how I did that in the area of money. This is how I laid down my rights for the sake of love. Now, Paul actually says a lot more about this laying down of his rights in 2 Corinthians, the, the fourth letter to the Corinthian church that we have. We only have two of them, first and second, but really it's the third and fourth that we have. So in 2 Corinthians 11, 7 to 11, Paul writes this. 2 Corinthians 11, 7 to 11. You can flip there if you want. 2 Corinthians 11, 7 to 11. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge. In other words, Paul rolled into town like their slave, lowering himself, not accepting money from them. You don't pay your slave to serve you, do you? No, they, they, they serve you for free. So Paul came into town not like a high-rolling theological teacher who is going to attract a lot of cash and a big name. 
in a packed theater, he rolls into town like a slave, working for them for free. Not accepting money from them. Not propping himself up over them, but stooping and serving them. He says this, verse 8. This is key to his whole way of doing it. And this is a funny, funny thing to say. He goes, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. You robbed other churches? He goes, is he a church robber? He goes on, verse 9. And when I came with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, that was the Philippian church, we preached, we preached through Paul's letter to Philippi, and we read about the generous gift they sent him to supply his needs. And Paul says, the brothers who came from Macedonia, the Philippian church, they, a very poor church, by the way, like way more poor than Corinthians. The poor Christians way over in Macedonia, I robbed them so I could preach to you for free. Why? Because you have issues. I, but because it wouldn't be loving for me to take money from you is what he's saying. That's how I needed to love you. And he says, as if I have... Um, I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Verse 10. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Gospel for free. Paul's going to do it. Why? Because I do not love you? Is my rejection of your money because I don't love you? No. God knows I do. So 2 Corinthians 7 makes really clear what Paul only alludes to in 1 Corinthians 9, namely that Paul is loving the Corinthians by laying down his right to take money from them. Interestingly, um, Paul doesn't draw it out as clearly in chapter 9 as he does in the other letter. Uh, it seems like maybe in the other letter some of the money issues are really starting to rise to the, to the focus. What he does emphasize is actually another reason for laying down his rights. It's very interesting. Um, his, his, his first reason is, is primarily because it's loving for them. But there's something really personal about this for Paul as well. Verse 16. For when I preach the gospel, he says, I can't boast about it. And, and by boast, this is not a, a prideful boast in a, in a wrong way, but a, a celebrating what God is doing through you. He says, since I am compelled to preach, I have to do it. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not, not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. So, not only was this a loving move for the Corinthians, and important that it be done to not hinder gospel work, Paul had a really personal reason, too. Paul views his own ministry very in a very interesting way. He, Paul did not choose to be a missionary for Jesus as others might choose to be a missionary. Paul didn't choose to leave the comfort of Israel and go out to the Gentiles and preach in all these cities, going from base to base to base to base instead of setting up camp in Jerusalem like um, James did or Peter eventually ended up in Rome. You know, Paul's roving job of preaching the gospel to all the Gentiles was something he was chosen for. Didn't have a choice in it. Um, do you remember his, Corinthian, uh, his conversion story? Maybe some of you have read that in the book of Acts chapter 9. Paul is riding to a town. He, leave, he leaves Jerusalem with his whole entourage of guys. And Paul is riding to a small town called Damascus where there's Christians. And you know what he's going to do? His name was Saul at that point. He's going there to arrest them and bring them back to jail, try them, and some of them at least kill. And he's already done that to one Christian in chapter 8, Stephen. And out of his way to kill Christians... Jesus himself speaks to Paul from his throne in heaven, blinding him with blazing light. 
Paul continues on to Damascus, unable to see. Three days later, when a Christian man named Ananias comes and lays his hands on Paul and prays over him to have his sight restored, Ananias speaks a prophecy from the Lord over the Apostle Paul. This man is my chosen instrument to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul's eyes are opened, he's called, and then he's unblinded, right? And he's commanded, preach. And you know what he does in Damascus? He walks out of that room and he starts preaching. Okay? He didn't, he, 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 he didn't have a choice in it. It's why he was chosen. So the question could be asked of Paul, Paul, is your heart really in this job? Or is it just your duty? Do you really want to preach the gospel to the Gentiles if you didn't really have a choice in the matter? Dave Carson, again, somebody I find super helpful, he writes this. He says, how can Paul show that his heart and soul are really in this ministry? What element, what part of his ministry proves that the, the kindness of God to him, the grace of God, has captured his heart and will and that his actions bring the rewards of God with them. What can he do to say that, um, you know, this is not, this is my heart that's in this. It's not just, I'm just doing my duty because this is what I have to do. But it's what I want to do too. And here's Paul's answer. Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I choose to offer it free of charge. That shows he was doing it out of not just out of mere duty or obligation, but out of genuine love. Love for the Lord and love for whoever he was ministering to. And in the Corinthian context, with their messed up views of money and of preachers, it was all the more important that Paul hold fast to his boast that his preaching was free preaching for the Corinthians. And it's really important that we don't develop a whole theology on pastors should preach for free, or don't pay pastors, okay, based on Paul's model here. Um, and some have tried to do that, okay? And, and one of the things that is important to notice is that Paul is actually very willing to take support from other churches. And we already mentioned that. He's not saying don't be paid. For example, in 1 Corinthians, you know, he's, he's working paying his own way with making tents. And he, he's teaching only on Saturdays. You read about this in the Gospel, or in the book of Acts. He's only teaching on Saturdays in the, in the temple. But six days a week he's working, making tents with Priscilla and Aquila, until the Macedonian believers come loaded with money to help him. Then he stops tent making and full-time starts doing gospel ministry. Okay? Because full-time is a win for the kingdom. But not if it causes trouble, okay, for the church. Now, our church, by the grace of God, is now in a position to support me as a pastor. But for the first three years of our ministry, I robbed other churches. <laughs> no, that's a silly way to say it, but that's Paul's language. We had dozens of individuals and churches support me and our church, not just me, but our church. I mean, this building represents the robbing of, you know, air quote robbing, of hundreds of other believers who believed in this gospel work and wanted to see this church have a base for gospel advance in this area. It's amazing, okay? What we did not do, what we never did, was come to Granville and ask the community, would you support our building fund no, we, we had a few people give to us, but we did not solicit that. We didn't reject it, but it only happened a couple times. Because people were excited about a new building being renovated on Main Street, which really needed it. Um, but we made it a point. This is, we're not about money. We want to offer it for free. But now as a church, we are in a different place where we are a self-sustaining church. We're able to now support what we do so that we then can maybe support other churches as well. And we are trying to do that and have done that, especially with our missionaries. Okay, so this is the third thing now that I want to talk about in verses 19 to 23. Um, Paul is going to draw 
on everything he said, and he's going to say, I am resolved to flex, to be flexible, not flex his muscles, but to be flexible for the gospel. Verses 19 to 23. So listen to these verses. 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And everything else Paul says next unpacks this statement here in verse 19. Paul is not anyone's slave. Okay? Just like the teachers that the Corinthians are used to going into town with all their all their big fanfare. Those guys aren't slaves to anybody. Paul's not either. Um, Paul, though, has come into the Corinthian context and worked like a slave. Worked for them. Worked for free. Like their slaves would. Why? So that he might even win some of the slaves in Corinth to Jesus. As well as those with money. Paul didn't want his acceptance or support of money to be a hindrance to anyone coming to Jesus. And now, Paul unpacks in verse 20 to 23 his radical missionary philosophy. He has the freedom in Jesus and under the law of the king to be flexible on many cultural issues. Paul was free to flex this way or flex that way, depending on who he was with, in order to remove as many barriers possible to people accepting Jesus. Whatever might get in the way of following Jesus, someone else following Jesus, Paul wanted it out of the way. All right. 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, 20 to 23. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. That'll be the law of Moses. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free. So it's like, wait, what? Are you lawless, Paul? Are you, are you a lawless person? No, I'm not free from God's law. I'm under Christ's law. Law is God's law. So I do this so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that all, by all possible means I might save some. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might have heard that phrase before. I have become all things to all people so that by all means possible I might save some. Verse 23, I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So Paul himself, we see, flexes for the gospel without compromising the gospel message about Jesus. For example, when Paul is with Jewish people, brought up under the law of Moses, he doesn't bring bacon to their parties. Instead, he eats kosher. He doesn't go out of the way to offend them by dragging an uncircumcised guy into the temple. No, Paul only wants the gospel of Jesus, the crucified and resurrected king, to be the thing that trips them up. If people are going to trip up on something, he doesn't want it to be, oh my gosh, this guy's eating pork and he's Jewish. He wants it to be, oh my word, this person says that Jesus rose from the dead and we know we killed him. What's that about? Okay, he wants the gospel about Jesus to be the thing that is the main issue, not other matters. So he's happy to keep the law while he's with people that keep the law, if it means he gets an opportunity to talk about Jesus and not make waves in the Jewish community unnecessarily. Become like the Jews to win the Jews. Become like those under the law to win those under the law. Even though Paul no longer views himself as strictly under the law of Moses, but under the law of the new Moses, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all that the law pointed to. The whole law is fulfilled in this. Love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Old Testament law, 611 examples of what that looks like in an ancient Near Eastern context where God is king. Now that the king Jesus has come, 
Okay, he gives us the final teaching on what love of God and love of neighbor looks like for all time. And Paul follows Jesus. And the Old Testament law, like don't muzzle the ox, is a principle that under the rule of Jesus can be applied to the church. Principles. Like pay your pastor. Okay? And that comes from the Old Testament law. But Paul is under the law of Jesus now. Whether he, he eats me or doesn't eat me, which we saw in the previous chapter. Whether he drinks or doesn't drink. How he dresses. How he presents himself. Whether he takes financial support or not. Paul is just trying to remove every physical and cultural barrier to following Jesus that he possibly can. So that by any means possible, he might connect people to the Lord Jesus. And he does it all for the sake of the gospel. So in the context of Corinthians, he's saying, brothers, sisters, this is what I've done. What are you willing to sacrifice for the gospel? What rights are you willing to lay down so as not to cause trouble for your other brothers and sisters in Jesus or for people outside the church? So here's the main idea again. Paul, Paul freely lays down his right to be paid so that he can experience the reward of preaching the gospel in the way that the Corinthians need. He didn't want anything to get in the way of people knowing and loving Jesus. So, here's some application for us. What does this mean for New Creation Church, for you sitting here if you trust Jesus? What rights are you willing to lay down that may cause a barrier to someone you know following the Lord Jesus? Or for someone who you know who is a Christian from growing in their faith in Christ? What are you willing to do to connect people to Jesus? Here's an example from one of the first Western missionaries ever sent out. A man who went to China. His name was Hudson Taylor. You may have heard of Hudson Taylor's name before. Most Western missionaries at that time, they despised the way that the Chinese people dressed. Silky gowns for men. The way the men wore their hair in long braids, their food. So they went and tried to plant European churches in China. It did not work. Taylor, Hudson Taylor, figured that if Jesus took on flesh to save humans, he could become Chinese to save the Chinese. And so he did. He wore their clothes. He ate their food. He lived in their style houses. He grew a long braid, which caused huge waves when he went back uh, to, to England. And people said, what, what mocked? They mocked it, right? But eventually he was used by God in a mighty way in China. Millions and millions of Christians in China can trace their story of the salvation back to Hudson Taylor's work. Hudson Taylor, he even translated the Bible into Chinese, right? And into all different dialects of Chinese. Hudson Taylor's willingness to flex for the gospel didn't mean that Hudson Taylor didn't have morals. It didn't mean that he was a chameleon shifting and changing colors just to please people. No, it meant he knew how to get rid of any external turnoffs that would get in the way of Chinese people hearing about Jesus. If he looked European, then... People would think, well, Jesus is just for the Europeans. He wanted them to know that Jesus spoke Chinese. Jesus loved the Chinese people. And today, there's estimates are all over the place. Maybe over 100 million Chinese people. Way more than America. Think about that when you wonder, what's China going to do? Maybe start the next revival? I don't know. So, what are some ways that we could consider flexing to bring people to Jesus? <coughs> well, first, let's talk about politics as Christians. As Christians, I believe that Jesus would have us hold our political allegiances loosely and our allegiance to Jesus tightly. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Your king and your kingdom 
is not of this world. That has to sink deeply into the souls of God's people. It must. Otherwise, we will find ourselves caught up in the new religion of the modern age. As religion dies in the West, you know what's filling the vacuum? Politics and a whole host of other things. But for many, it's politics. I'm not saying Christians should become Democrat to win Democrats, or become Republicans to win Republicans, and hop between parties to, to pull people to Jesus. No, I'm saying as Christians, we must maintain a neutral allegiance to Jesus and to his kingship, so that we can actually be in a position where we can stand up and critique any political party ever, anywhere, with the authority of King Jesus. And so that we can have thoughtful and respectful and meaningful conversations with people who don't know Jesus, wherever they might land politically. Yes, we have a right. We as Christians have a right. All people have a right to their political opinions. We have a right to believe passionately that one policy is far better for the flourishing of humanity than another policy. However, I believe that in many instances, Jesus would have us lay down our right to voice those opinions if it drives people who disagree with us away before we ever get a chance to talk to them about the Son of God and the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of the new creation and the joy of knowing we will be raised from the grave. You can't even get to talking about those things if the way that you present yourself turns people off immediately because you're showing your allegiance to a different power first. No, let's smell like Jesus. Okay? Yeah, we can talk about these things. I've had lots of political discussions with people that don't follow Jesus. It's, it's, it, you know, it can be interesting. It can be a bridge to, man, don't we wish Jesus was king? Okay? Um, show how Jesus is different. But Let's lead with Jesus. Finances. As Christians, if we choose to live to the full extent of our financial means, when those around us are less well-off financially, we may create unnecessary barriers to the gospel. However, there's an opposite extreme. We as Christians can become so stingy and conservative about money that we turn people off from the gospel and push people away from us and from Jesus. Jesus was approachable by the rich young ruler and by poor beggars. Jesus was flexible. He didn't immediately push people away. We should be too. What will it take to reach people? As Christians, there's no universal standard of dress. Think about clothing. That applies to every Christian at all times and in all places. And if we're not flexible, how we dress can create barriers to the gospel, okay? This requires sensitivity to who we're around. As Christians, we ought not dress in a way that might create a barrier in someone's mind to receiving Jesus. We don't wear clothes with messages that might push people away from Jesus, all right? Or at least push them away from us before we have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. We lay down that right for the sake of love. For example, if I was in a context where hunting was really frowned upon, I probably wouldn't wear camo in public. Right? Why? Not because I'm ashamed of hunting, but because I would lay down that right, hopefully, so that I don't turn people off from me. Oh, he's just a hunter. And he's a Christian? Like, I want to talk about Jesus first. All right? So think about th th these principles, wisdom principles, can apply to a host of different things. I'm just giving one example. Think about it. We wear suits to reach those with suits. We wear plaid to reach those with plaid. Okay? And sometimes we just wear something in between, like today. Hiking pants and a dress shirt, right? Or whatever. Always like, oh, gosh. Um, language. Last thing. Language. As Christians, we know the mighty power of the tongue. The tongue is a small part of the body, yet it can set a forest ablaze. Right? Just like a spark. 
sets a force blade. The tongue can set a whole home ablaze. How we speak, what we say to people can either open doors to talk about Jesus or just slam doors to talking about Jesus right from the start. If you speak to people who don't know Jesus and you speak to them using big religious words that they don't understand, you can make them feel very quickly that Jesus isn't for them. Words that we mentioned earlier, like holy, right? And righteous, and justification, and sanctification, and glory. Hallelujah! Big religious words. If you use a big word, explain it. Like Carl did earlier. Like we want to explain things. And pick your battles. Someone might articulate a view of something. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus, or a brand new Christian, might articulate something or say something you totally disagree with. Many times, you don't need to say much. You might just say, yeah, I would look at that a little bit differently. But then bring it back to deeper things, closer connected to the gospel. What do you think about the Lord Jesus? What do you think about his claims? What do you think about how great he is? We want Jesus to be what pushes people away. Not our views on immigration or inflation or some political party. And this is only possible if we, as the people of Jesus, are absolutely passionate about Jesus. If you love Jesus with all your heart, and truly see how much of a treasure he is, then you will want to do what Paul did. I just want to, to be a channel through which people can see Jesus. Okay? And if there's anything unnecessary about me that gets in the way, I just, I just want, I, I'm willing to give it up. I just hold it loosely. Not bring it into the conversation. So that people will at least get an opportunity to encounter the Son of God. Jesus. There's no human like him. He's the king. And he's our king. And it is a privilege to introduce people to him. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to run to Jesus for help knowing what this looks like in our lives. I pray that we would do whatever it takes to reach people that are in our spheres of influence with the good news of Jesus. Help us be really wise and sensitive to what unnecessarily turns people off to us so that through us, they might have an opportunity to encounter the living God. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.